How can we make insurance fair and ethical with AI? This is Benevolent Bots, discussions on a safer, smarter future. Brought to you by Lemonade. Welcome to Benevolent Bots, brought to you by Lemonade. Here, we're exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance. Today's episode is all about fairness and governance. What does it mean to build a fair model? Why do we need accountability? Joining us today is the founder and CEO of Credo AI, Navrina Singh. Navrina is on a mission to empower enterprises to develop AI with the highest ethical standards. She's a technology leader with decades of experience and has held multiple product and business leadership roles at Microsoft and Qualcomm. She is also a member of the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee, which advises the president and the National AI Initiative Office. Very, very cool. Well, hello to you both. Welcome, Navrina. And I guess before we get started, just congratulations on building Credo. Like I said, before we started the call, I think it's just been really amazing to see what you've built up and the first of the kind, I think, company that you've been building, which is really exciting. So actually, maybe before we jump into the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about Credo? What are you building and and what's the goal behind it? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tulsi, for having me. I am excited to share more about Credo AI and then more about the state of responsible AI today on this podcast. So Credo AI is industry's first responsible AI platform, which provides comprehensive oversight and accountability across the entire AI lifecycle. Starting Credo AI really started with my work in the past 18 years in the tech industry building AI products, where I saw this massively increasing oversight deficit that started to really cause us to put out AI applications out in the world, which weren't aligned with the ethical values that we as developers were trying to bring to the market. And this was primarily, you know, my teams in the past were data science, product management, machine learning focused, and very rarely would we bring in the perspective of compliance and policy and risk. And every time we brought in that perspective, things would slow down because there were a lot of checks and balances that were put in place. So I would say like, you know, 10 years ago, it was seen as a hindrance, but more and more as we started to build out large scale AI applications, what became very clear was that these are living systems that we are putting out in the world. And it is really essential for us to start thinking about, are they performing in alignment with the values, with the regulations, with the standards, with the intention that we've created these applications for. And when I looked across the industry about three, three and a half years ago, there were no set of tools to really bridge that oversight deficit that exists between the technical and the business stakeholders and took it upon myself to leave Microsoft and and start Credo AI. So Credo AI, you know, we'll share more during the podcast, but think about it as building trust across the entire system And that system includes not only your technical system, your data sets and your models, but also your people and processes. And once you build that trust across all these different aspects of your technical and process and people systems, the output is really high level of accountability and oversight that is brought to your AI applications. And I guess, you know, question there, when you talk about oversight and accountability, 
there actually is pretty little regulation that actually exists today, right, in machine learning and AI. And consistency of standards is pretty low and pretty different across spaces. So what does accountability and oversight mean from your perspective? And how do you determine what the right goals are and what the right criteria are to be thinking about when you're building these systems? Yeah, great question. You know, I think about this just like any other technology wave, when you think about privacy and cybersecurity, we are going to go through this evolution for artificial intelligence where right now the standards and what does good look like is really dependent on what an enterprise defines as what good looks like for them. What is their risk threshold? What are they willing to put out in the market that they can actually stand behind? So what we are seeing right now across our customer base, which is primarily Global 2000s in financial services, insurance, banking, HR and talent management, government, is enterprises who are, one, buying machine learning applications from third-party AI vendor models, and two, who are building their own machine learning applications, have a very deep sense of what is it that they can actually put out in the market and get behind. So when we talk about regulations, we actually don't see regulations as the only tipping point to getting on responsible AI journey. There are multiple forces that these enterprises are trying to get ahead of. First and foremost, as you can imagine, consumers are becoming more aware of where algorithms are touching their life and are becoming more vocal and educated about the need for transparency. And when you think about the social movements that we've seen in the past couple of years, enterprises now have to hold themselves to higher standards to meet the consumer demand. So that's just one pressure. When you extend that pressure to other stakeholders like board, investors, what is fascinating is now investors are saying, hey, I am willing to invest in an organization, but in addition to your financial reporting, we would also like to see reporting on ethical use of data not only compliant to GDPR, but how you're also creating these responsible applications. And then when you think about peer groups, you know, especially in the high-tech companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all included, they are recognizing that one of the ways that their peers are differentiating in this market is not only through technological innovation, it is through this trust-building exercise that, wow, I am actually transparent with my consumer base as to Where am I using an AI application? Where am I sourcing my data from? What kind of assessments have I done internally? Why did I do those assessments? What does governance really look like? And they are finding very early on these benefits of this transparency that they're bringing out in the market. And then, yes, then comes the next set of pressures, which I categorize as soft laws and hard regulation. In case of soft laws, when you think about standards, There is, ISO is doing some work, IEEE is doing some work, NIST, you know, their risk management framework is a great testament to some of these emerging what is good look like practices. And then obviously hard regulations when you think about Europe's Artificial Intelligence Act, when you think about, especially in United States, local and state regulations like New York City bias law, they do become those heavy handed checkbox activities that companies would have to align to. So I think long story short, I do want the audience here to understand that it's not just the regulations, which is driving action and responsible AI, which is primarily focused on risk management. But I think there's this beautiful opportunity in 
using responsible AI as a differentiation by engendering trust, which is going to unlock more sales. It's going to engage your stakeholders longer. It's going to keep your employees, your board, your investors much more excited about the technologies that an enterprise is building. I mean, I love that framing also because I think it's just more opportunistic and positive, right? I think it's a lot more exciting, even as someone working in a company, to work on something that you think is going to differentiate your company for your users and actually going to build a better experience for your users than it is to feel like you're reacting to regulation or you're doing something because you have to check a box, right? So so I do think it is actually really nice to think about that duality. And it's also really interesting, actually, to hear you talk about third-party models and vendors, because I was actually just at a meeting for the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, on Tuesday. And that is one of the key things that they're thinking about, which is, as insurance companies are purchasing models from other vendors, what is it that these insurance companies should be asking for, right? What kind of insight, what kind of transparency, what kind of criteria, you know, should we be holding these companies to? So so that also, I think, very much resonates with a lot of what we're hearing, I think, on the insurance side as well. But Daniel, I, I want to take it to you. You know, Navrina talked a lot about the different incentives on the company side, as well as the regulation side. How do you think about that, both for Lemonade and for insurance more broadly? I broadly agree, and it sounds exactly like the kind of thinking and perhaps systems and capabilities that companies like Lemonade are looking to develop and processes that we're looking to develop. And as you say, speaking to the NAIC, it's something that the commissioners and our competitors are thinking about. The place where I, I wonder, Navrina, where whether you feel things get a little bit unstuck is it's one thing to ensure that the systems are doing what they are intended, which sounds like is the primary purpose of, of what you're working on. The tougher question for me is, what should we be intending? <laughs> so it, it, it very quickly moves from the alignment problem, making sure that AI is doing what we want it to do to the philosophical question of what do we want it to do? And in space, places like insurance, where you're using data in order to assess risk, it is forward-looking in its nature. It's trying to guess how likely Navrina is to have a break-in or a car crash or a health issue. So it's really trying to use data and past patterns to predict future outcomes some real tough fairness issues arise and philosophical issues arise. And you can go from kind of the deterministic point of view, which says we're all just outputs of genes and environment, and therefore whatever we do is not, it's fair not to blame us for it. And then it's not about just finding people as they are, but accounting for how they got there versus some of the other kind of alternative philosophical outlooks where you're really saying, well, I'm going to charge you based on things that you control. I'm rabbiting on a bit, but th these are the kind of things that preoccupy me a little bit. And I wonder to what extent in your work you bridge that gap from just ensuring that the systems do what we want to answering the question, what should we want? Yeah, great question, Daniel. You know, one of our fastest performing sectors is insurance. And it's been really fascinating to see a couple of things emerge for us where you know, I think what we want from this to start out with is actually transparency. It's as simple as that. We are not looking for, you know, your systems to be perfect, meeting the thresholds defined by either you as Lemonade or somebody else. First and foremost, you know, in, in discussions with NAIC and other organizations, what's very clear is 
even defining the thresholds is a tough problem right now. Going back to your comment around alignment, you can internally align on, you know, within Lemonade's boundaries, what does good look like for you? What does those thresholds look like for you? If fairness is an important responsible AI tenant, how you as a company are going to measure it, but more importantly, be transparent around where you're finding gaps, right? So for us at Credo, I think the first core aspect is really providing a mechanism for companies to be able to do transparency reporting, disclosure reporting against what they believe good looks like. And then this goes back to the whole notion of what are companies' values, how do you codify them in a mechanism that is interrogating your technical systems, but all your, also your people and processes. And then the output of those are something that you're transparently sharing with your consumer base or your regulators so that you can say within the context of what I know, because there's no other context right now, there's no standards, there's no set of accepted criteria around what does fairness mean within insurance. This is what we know. And within that, we are going to be super transparent. So I think this is the strategy that Credo AI is seeing emerge a lot among our customers. But more importantly, that's something that we are actively pushing for. And by the way, transparency also goes way beyond just explainability. I think there's a conflation of terms in the market. It is not just about explaining the inputs and outputs of your models, but it is really when you think about context, when you think about an AI use case, what really transpires in that entire life cycle of that use case from the time that you decided that this is an application that you're going to be putting out. As an example, one of the customers we work with, they have life insurance models, right? So it's from day one, it's the intent, like what is that life insurance model? Why are they using machine learning for it? What is the application? How is it going to actually determine the outputs and the premiums that this model is going to be you know, putting out and how a decision is going to be made by a company. So I think for us, Daniel, at this stage, which I call early innings of responsible AI governance, it's all around transparency and then moving on its assessments associated with those transparencies. And then obviously, as more and more standards emerge, there is hopefully going to be emergence of what does good look like in industries, which we are not there yet. I'm curious, actually, to your point about being transparent about fairness, right, and fairness gaps. I think there's kind of two questions that come to mind for me, right? One is, what do we even mean by fairness, right? Fairness is a term that carries a lot of this meaning with it, right? So I guess maybe starting there, Navrina, how do you think about fairness? What does that mean for you? And how does that fit into this vision of governance? Yeah, you know, Tulsi, you are one of the experts in that space. So I can, I totally expected this question coming from you. You know, fairness is a tough topic. And I'll just take you back to my upbringing in India. When I was growing up, women really weren't afforded the same opportunities as men because there was a societal norm which was applied to women versus men. So I was one of the renegades, so I never followed those rules. But as you can imagine that growing up, there was a set of decisions already made on your behalf. And I, when I look at that and I sort of compare that to current AI systems, be it in hiring on everything else, I feel like we are sort of taking that same biases that I grew up with and now carrying that forward in technology because there is a vision of what does good engineer look like. And guess what? It's not me. And I am an engineer. So for me, like I think that by itself is problematic. So what does fairness really mean for me? 
is really around putting people on this equitable base where we call them protected attributes, but when there are these specific attributes that are not playing into a decision that are you a good engineer or not, right? So yes, obviously that's a philosophical answer. How does that translate into something actionable? And I think this is where a lot of discussion and debate in every sector is happening. When I'll take example of hiring, New York City bias law is something which is top of everyone's mind, not because it is pervasive, it's global in nature, but because it's the first, I would say, local jurisdiction that has been bold enough to put out a statement with many gaps. It has lots of omissions. It has lots of gaps. But what has been fascinating about it is they took a stance around what does fairness mean for them, which is really, you know, doing assessments of these technical systems on the measures of desperate impact, which is just focused on three protected attributes, which is sex, ethnicity, and race. Now, the problem is, I I do want to talk about the positive of this. The positive is they took a stand that this is what we're going to start with, but this is not the end. This is just the starting point. But as you can imagine, there is evolutions of this regulation that we're going to start seeing in the coming years. We're going to see this across different jurisdictions. We are going to see this at global level, but if it is going to start building upon what we want at the end of the day from these systems. So I really believe that fairness is a very core to an organization, core to a country's cultural values as what they define as fairness, and everyone's definition is going to differ. So for us, it's really within the context of the AI application, within the context of the company, within the context of the jurisdiction, what are you going to be defining fair as and what are you going to be measuring against is right now we see as a first step. <laughs> I wonder if I could probe on that a little bit. I wonder if you'd agree with the following kind of hypothesis, which is that to achieve that level of fairness requires more data rather than less. I'll explain myself. I think a lot of a lack of fairness comes from, and, and this is true as humans when we first interact. So taking your story, so you're a woman who grew up in India at a time that sexism would have made it hard for women growing up in India to become engineers, just feeding off of what you said, which probably means that if I meet a woman who grew up in India on the street, my and I knew all of that, then my pattern recognition should say she's unlikely to be an engineer. And if that's all I knew about you, that would be a reasonable statistical extrapolation to make because I only have that one data point and it correlates with not being an engineer. <laughs> But if I get a lot more information about you, more, the more and more data I can get, the more I can break up what appears to be a monolithic group and start looking really at personalized characteristics. And then I, I think there is something fundamentally fairer about getting more and more information. And that's true at a human level when we meet. And we oftentimes have biases when we first interact with a person, then we get to know them better. And those biases get broken down because we actually see into the person beyond the externalities. And I wonder whether that same metaphor carries over to machine learning and big data as well. I love that thesis, Daniel, because I do think it does. I think one, it's not only just the size of data, like do we have more data that can sort of inform uh, the kind of machine learning applications we are building and training on. But I think it's really around the quality of data. You know, have you done a good sort of representative set of data collection that is going to represent the outcomes that you're expecting. I think that's really critical when we think about machine learning 
applications, especially in machine learning. Right now, what we are finding is there's we need to take a step back and start thinking about a little bit more holistically around where is that data coming from? Have you done enough analysis of that data and making sure it's representative of the final applications uh, that you're trying to put this out uh, for, but then do that on a continuous manner. And also, obviously, one of the biggest questions right now with GDPR and Light is, is it compliant data? Where did you source it from? Was there consent actually given to that data? And are you using it in a way that the individual who's consented is in line with that intent of use? So I think there's a lot of, I would say, layers that are now showing up, which I really think is a very intentional approach now to machine learning and AI building, where it is like, let's step back and think about how can we bridge the gap between what is the intent of this application to the actual use? And then that, as you can imagine, focuses extensively on the quality of data, the comprehensiveness of the data, and also the use of that data in the right applications. I'm curious, though, on that point, which is, you know, I think, Daniel, in your premise, there is this notion that more data will give me a more realistic picture, right? And I think, Navrina, you're articulating that the representativeness of that data really matters. In the context of insurance, right, one of the challenges is that there have been years of systemic bias that have been built into the way that, you know, the United States is even designed as a country, right? And the way that our neighborhoods are structured and situated. And then also, of course, as a result of that, the way that insurance has been distributed, How do you think about that when data is being collected now by insurance companies, right? Because even if you collect a representative sample across the United States, you, of course, will inevitably inherit and collect data that reflects biases that are probably out of the control of the individual insurance company, but are also and are also very ingrained in in our society, but are also very real. Right. And so how do you grapple with that when you talk about kind of data quality or, or data representativeness? Yeah, great question, Tulsi. And this is where I just go back to, I'm a big believer in human potential and the power of humans. So you'll hear me say this quite a lot. You've heard terms like human in the loop, human over the loop. I really think human is the loop and human is in command. So I think we should take that agency back. So going back to your point, one of the things we encourage our customers to do is to bring in multi-stakeholder views, especially from impacted populations and really try and see, are those impacted populations represented at the right phases of your data and AI lifecycle pipelines? I don't think if we continue to just amass massive amounts of data and do all our technical testing on it and make sure it's like representative, I don't think we are going to be solving this problem. So how do you bring the human, which is the loop, back in command by bringing these impacted population and engaging in these multi-stakeholder conversations I believe is a critical uh, aspect right now of building responsible machine learning applications. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Can we double click on that for a second? Because I think we talk a lot about, you know, participatory design or multi-stakeholder approaches. How do you think a insurance company, for example, or, or someone listening to this podcast should go about approaching that, right? So who are these stakeholders who we should be bringing into the conversation and Do you have an example maybe of what a way is in which to engage a community respectfully, right, but also in a way that that can help move the product forward? Yeah, great question, Tulsi. And this is where we are experimenting at scale right now at at Credo AI. So I think if you just sort of step back and think about, you know, what I said earlier in the podcast, 
Starting something as simple as when you're first deciding to use machine learning in your application, really looking across your team and seeing who's who are the people on the table. And it should certainly not just be the machine learning engineers and data scientists. And not to say that there is a lack of moral compass there, it's just a lack of the higher order understanding of the risk that the enterprise might face that might be missing and the missing aligned incentives that we discussed. So I think it's really critical at the stage of designing and thinking about these applications to really engage with risk compliance policy stakeholders, but also extending a little bit further there where at that time thinking about, okay, if there is an application that I am going to use a resume analyzer where I might be looking at resume across entire United States to source the right candidates, I think there should be a candidate pool that you should be engaging with very early on in terms of user experience where these automated decision tools might be used in those hiring decisions. So some of the ways that we are working with the enterprises right now is really having like a customer panel very early on to have that conversation at the design phase that here's an application we are thinking about building. What are the core parameters that we might be thinking about that we should be thinking about especially around the use of this application, et cetera. But as you can imagine, that does should not just happen at the onset or at the end. It needs to happen throughout. And this is where I believe that your diverse teams make a huge dent. We have seen across you know, all the customers we work in, the moment that you have more diversity from technical business as well as social sciences, you're seeing better outcomes in terms of the applications that get created. So that's one response. The second response is, and this is, I would say, very early work that many companies and including ourselves, we are trying to do is when you create these transparency reports and and visibility into what you built, why you've built it, how it was built, who's accountable for it. I think having mechanisms for end users who are getting impacted to provide feedback back to the company so that they can say in a live production environment, how these applications are working and then how it is impacting could be a useful exercise. I don't have enough data point yet because we've not obviously scaled this, but this is, I think, going to be a really important mechanism for uh, redress as well as making sure that the machine learning applications are really thought about intentionally when it comes to those impacted populations. But these are some of the things we are trying and testing right now. Welcome to hear, Daniel, your perspective in terms of how have you seen this uh, play out in Lemonade as well. Yeah. Well, Tulsi's been helping us do some of the things that you discuss. So introduce the disciplines, ask the questions early on, do reviews of which data are being used and how they were sourced, et cetera. So we are trying to be intentional about that. At Lemonade, part of our thesis is that the use of big data and machine learning or AI more broadly can be used to significantly increase fairness and ethics in our industry, but that it's not self-evident that it will. That's something that you have to be intentional about and and work hard to achieve. But we are optimists in that sense. We think that there is great power to, um, coming back to my question to you earlier, to use data in order to break down kind of monolithic groups. So today in insurance, gender is used as a pricing factor because it's predictive of how people drive. Uh, marital status is used that way. Credit scores are used this way. So we're using fairly crude proxies for broad strokes of the population. And there is a reticence to go 
to the next step and use data that is much more nuanced and textured and and big. And that means also that it's harder for actuaries using Excel spreadsheets and, and you start moving into the kind of machine learning realm and therefore there's a sense of a loss of control and there's a fear that that means that bad things will ensue. And we're of the conviction that using the kind of methodologies that you've outlined, that no, it, bad things needn't ensue. This is actually the path to greater fairness. Humans are not unbiased. A lot of the problems in machine learning bias is that it inherits the bias of humans. It's not that it's inherently biased. So we think that there is a pathway from here to a greater modicum of of fairness and ethics over time. I do wonder, you touched on a couple of things that you spoke about using data that has people have given consent for its use, and you spoke about methodologies to offer transparency on what the algorithms are doing. I'm originally a lawyer. I'm a recovering attorney. I've been clean for 20 years. But um, those kinds of solutions do have a legalistic ring to them. You know, you check the consent box and a lawyer drafted this long consent form or there's a transparency report afterwards. But how consumer friendly is that really? How much do consumers, given the complexity of the algorithms at work and the, the massiveness of the data that's being collected, how real is it that humans are actually giving consent in an informed sense? And what will they ever do with the kind of transparency reports that come out after the fact? Oh, wow. You know, that's, uh, Daniel, it's interesting. Uh, you caught me at a, a at an interesting time this week because I've been thinking deeply about this age of conflict that we are living in. And I think what's happening right now is we are really grappling with, I want systems to do service to me. So I want these AI systems to be in service of me. But at the same time, I want to control all my data. And I think that conflict, this convenience versus this responsibility conflict is something that we are seeing arise quite a bit. So are people informed about consent? Are they reading those long forms where their data is going to be used? Absolutely not, because they always think about the end application. Is this going to be recommending me products when I need to? Certainly, I want that. But if it is facial recognition that's used for surveillance, absolutely not, right? So I think one of the ways to think about it is the risk profile and the places where this data is going to be used is, I think, a really good way to start filtering where we should be thinking deeply about consent and not. Past three years, I'll just go on a little bit digression here. Past three years, one of the things that we at Credo have also been working on the side is building a global data trust, which is really around creating this place where people want to donate their data, whether it's biometric data. And then, by the way, this is in concept, we want to realize it, but where they can donate their data for actual true conformity assessments and independent uh, testing. Because right now, the vendors that we've been in discussions with who are collecting this data, what we have found is one, either they are using, and this goes back completely anti-GDPR, but we found vendors who are just going and scraping, you know, YouTube videos and videos available online and without consent of people collecting images and using those images for training machine learning systems and actually selling that data to big enterprises to go and train these systems. Right there, there's a problem. Is anybody calling them out? No, just because one, they have not been transparent around their practices. 
But then there's a second set of data collectors in this world, many of the vendors that we've spoken to in the past, where they have a workforce and they're sourcing data from that workforce. And they're very clear upfront with that workforce in from day one is, here's a consent, here's how we're going to use your data and we are going to pay you for it. So are you in or are you out? But I think there's a limitation there as well because does that consent form, and we've seen many of those, list out each and every application that data is going to be used for? No. So I think what I'm finding really, I would say, frustrating point in our current economy is, you know, when we talk about consent and when we talk about data and when we talk about data minimization, we actually aren't holding enterprises accountable for it. So this is where the need for transparency and the need for how are you going to use this data, which applications you're not going to use this data for is really critical mechanism by which we can hold enterprises accountable because I believe that end consumers will take time to get educated. They will take time to take action. They will take time to truly understand that these systems, which right now feel like in service of us because you know, they are helping us navigate streets. I don't even have to think about the path I'm driving on because now I have this app, which is just telling me, take left, take, take right. Or when you're on Amazon and it's beautifully recommending all the products you should be buying, we have lost a sense of agency. And I think when you've lost a sense of agency, but it comes with convenience, you aren't asking these high level questions and these important questions. And this is why, you know, for Credo AI, it's very important for us to, one, educate the public and the consumers around uh, the data practices, but also how, you know, we need to hold enterprises accountable to where this data is going to be used and responsible building of this technology. So this brings me back to the global data trust, you know, need. I really, truly believe that there needs to be a global data trust where, you know, enterprises can use that data for independent fairness testing and for reporting on conformity assessments. Because right now, unfortunately, there is this poisoning that's happening between training data sets, validation data sets, and there's literally no way to do that independence fairness testing that you and I were just discussing. How this happens, where it happens, when it happens is still TBD. But right now, the only place that we've seen sequestered data truly available is with government agencies. And right there, you know, I think there's a barrier for enterprises to even show that they're truly fair in whatever sense you're defining fairness as. Yeah, I think that's also, I mean, I love, I love this notion partly also because what we're seeing even when companies are trying to pursue fairness testing is a number of challenges that emerge, right? What are you evaluating fairness on in terms of your data set and who are you evaluating it for? Do you even have the attributes to evaluate for, right? So, you know, in the context of insurance, again, at this NAIC meeting, a lot of the conversation was about how do you ask companies to evaluate for fairness if they're not collecting data on race, right? Uh, and if we're explicitly asking them not to do that, right? And so do we trust companies to collect this data and to use it well and to annotate and evaluate in the right ways? Or do we need to figure out a way of sequestering that that type of data such that, you can run these evaluations without having the data in that format, right? And so if you can create a way for companies to engage with data that will allow them to understand these concepts, right? I think the challenge you probably run into, I imagine, is that 
different companies, the shape of them look so different, right? I imagine the the users that Lemonade has look very different than the users of a different insurance company. How do you create a, a global data trust that really meets the needs of every company from a fairness testing perspective, I think becomes really interesting, but very powerful also. Absolutely, Tulsi. And I think with that, we are actually nearing the end of our time. So I think this might be a good place to start with this exciting opportunity of, of a global data trust and how can we actually collect more representative data intentionally with privacy in mind, with consent in mind, with, with our users in mind. So thank you for having this conversation and for joining us, Navrina. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to see where, where Credo goes. I'm excited to see the work that you do to push forward these standards. And I'm excited to see how Lemonade can continue to also push forward. How do we think about fairness and how do we build that into our product as well? Well, thank you so much for having me, Tulsi. I do want to underscore, you know, we are just starting out on this AI governance and responsible AI journey. But for organizations that are going to be using machine learning and AI at scale, this is going to become a core differentiation. So if there is any moment in time to start governance and responsible practices, the moment is now. And I think without that, I think companies are going to be in deep you know, trouble with the different forces that we've discussed to really meet the obligations that this new world of AI needs. I love that. The moment is now. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Navrina, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with us today about developing AI, what it means to be fair, why accountability is so critical, how we bring more stakeholders into the process, and what we do about data and how we build and collect that responsibly. We also want to thank all of you listeners for listening. If this is your first time listening and you've enjoyed the show, think about leaving us a review. It really helps us out and makes sure even more people can discover the show. Please make sure to also subscribe while you're at it. Thanks for listening. This has been Benevolent Bots, exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance, brought to you by Lemonade.